As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Richard Claret is with us, Global Economic Advisor at PIMCO, and student of his economic history. Uh, Professor Clarida, somebody spoke of creative destruction this morning, and that reminded me of a guy named Hyman Minsky, who long ago and far away had Schumpeter as his doctoral advisor. And of course, Hyman Minsky in the lore talks about a Minsky moment or maybe talks about the efficacy of regulation. Let's bring over the cacophony of another time in Hyman Minsky over to what Michael Barr at the Fed needs to do. What is the best outcome of bank, the new bank revel, uh, regulation and the lessons we're learning in this march? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of progress, uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, and in particular for the large systemically important uh, institutions with stress testing and liquidity and all the rest. I think what this episode does uh, reveal uh, is that institutions may look small, they can get big, as you know, SVB, for example, tripled in size in a couple of, of, of years. And even institutions of that size, uh, as we saw over the weekend, can be systemic. So I think the clear uh, direction of travel is going to be uh, that under existing statutes and laws, the Fed has enormous uh, uh, flexibility in the way that it supervises uh, institutions on a case-by-case basis. And I think we're going to see that level of supervision and particular scrutiny of things like the hold of maturity portfolios being underwater and liquidity uh, and the uninsured deposits are all going to be factors uh, in. So the direction of tap travel is going to be right. tighter supervision. Yeah. Would you suggest our central bank will have to adapt to the political realities of Republicans hugely distrustful of the big accumulation of capital, almost in a Jacksonian way, how big will that umbrella extend out from the too big to fails? I think I think it's going to certainly extend into a number of the names that are in that in that 100 to 250. I remind you that was actually by statute in 2018. The statute said that a, a less uh, prudential scrutiny for banks under 250 billion. But again, the, the legislation gives the Fed a lot of autonomy within that on an individual bank basis, and we're going to see that I think with tighter supervision. 
What we just saw, though, a lot of people are pointing the finger at the Federal Reserve and saying that they should have had more supervision of this bank and that this was a policy failure that has really interfered now with their ability to raise rates elsewhere. Do you think that that's fair? Do you think that this was a policy mistake or do you think that this is a direct result of rolling back that aspect of Dodd-Frank in 2018? Well, I've looked into it a little bit. Again, you know, I'm, I'm no longer in that building or talking to those folks. The interesting thing, Lisa, is that the stress tests that were set up very successfully after Dodd-Frank typically looked at scenarios with deep recessions, high unemployment, and falling interest rates. And, and SVP would have done great in that scenario. They didn't have a lot of direct exposure in, in lending or, or the like. Uh, but what they did have, obviously, is a lot of exposure in long duration uh, treasuries uh, and, uh, and mortgages. Um, in, in particular, there's something called a global market shock that looks uh, into to that. Uh, I've also seen some work that indicates, again, I can't judge, but that SVP would have passed the standard uh, Fed uh, liquidity uh, test. Uh, so, so, so clearly, I think they're going to be studying this. I don't want to prejudge where they end up, but I think that is going to be uh, reviewed and changed. That said, Rich, and this is a point that Neil Dutta made, and he's going to be on later in the show. He said, you know, the Fed basically has hiked a lot. Why are they surprised by duration risk? And why is it being treated as a bug rather than a feature of the hiking program? From your vantage point, do you think that perhaps there has been a bit of complacency about the resilience of an economy that so far hasn't broken, but now is starting to show some more acute strains? I don't think I'd use the term complacency. What I would say is I broadly agree with Neil in the direction of travel. Look, when you raise rates, uh, you invert the yield curve on a sustained uh, basis. Uh, that is intended to tighten financial and credit conditions, and it is tightening financial and credit uh, conditions. Uh, and so I don't. I hope nobody in the building <clears throat> thought that we could get to this point without there being a tightening uh, in lending. Now, importantly, and let me get this on the table: what the Fed did Sunday night. Uh, was exactly the right move. It's essentially expanding the discount window authority to lend against good collateral, which has been in place since 1913. And that's an entirely appropriate thing for the Fed to do, to give institutions liquidity against their uh, security uh, uh, portfolio. So I think that was right. Uh, but yes, I, I'm broadly in that camp that when you, when you raise rates and you invert the curve, uh, you're going to make uh, lending more expensive and and intermediaries are going to bear some of that burden, absolutely. How much more likely is a hard landing, in your view, a recession that does inflict some more pain today than, say, a week ago? It, it's certainly more likely. Um, you know, I've been in the camp consistently, I think, since doing your show last fall, that we, we, we more likely than not, we will see a recession with a, with a rise in unemployment and some negative prints on GDP. Again, when you have a rate hike cycle of this magnitude, uh, and, and how quickly uh, that is going to be the outcome. But yeah, has the, has, have the odds of a hard landing uh, gone up? Uh, they certainly have. I'm still, I don't think that's my baseline for a hard line landing, but sure, the odds have to have gone up somewhat. Richard, I just want to finish on this. This line that you often hear when central banks don't do something you've expected them to do, and you hear things like, they might know something we don't know. Does the Fed ever know something we don't know? Well, look, um, the short answer is yes, not not often and, and not to a great uh, degree. I tell you one one situation where we didn't know anything the 
that people didn't know was about the coronavirus. And so um, uh, we didn't have any special briefings or insight. What about banking troubles, Richard? If there were banking troubles behind the scenes, are they things that the Fed would know about but wouldn't talk about? Well, yes, because the Fed has supervisors on uh, the ground with with thousands of of banks at a very granular uh, uh, level. Uh, and, um, and and so certainly some of that information is not in the public uh, domain, and appropriately so. That's why things become so speculative, Tom, in the next yeah. week going into this decision. It's so difficult for this Fed chair. Should we have Claret on tomorrow? Can we get him on for another? I, got I like think he's joining us every day. Questions. You're out next week. What you don't know is that Richard Claudia is going to be. He's guest hosting He's going to be guest anchor oh, next week. <laughs> Richard, thank you, sir, for being with us. What an important morning. Richard Clarity there, the former Fed chair, Fed vice chair, and currently of PIMCO. Dominic Constam does not have laryngitis. He's got to make a call. He's the head of macro strategy at Mizuho Americas. Dominic, let's start here. ECB first. How much daylight is there between what you think they should do and what you expect they will do? Um... Um, well, well, not not too much. I mean, I think the uh, you know, they are a little bit behind the Fed in terms of um, raising real rates and fighting inflation. So, I, I, uh, if I were to expect the Fed, for the sake of argument, to stop, and the ECB was expected to raise fifty, uh, it's pretty easy for them to just scale that back uh, and uh, sort of signal that they're almost done. But um, I would expect them to sort of still push push uh, rates a little bit higher. In uh, famous Constum twenty twenty hindsight, Dominic, you absolutely nailed it on this show a number of weeks ago. You pounded the table, a lonely table, saying they are super restrictive. As they go into these set of meetings, are they still super restrictive? Uh, yeah, I mean, financial conditions are actually tightening uh, through all of this. Uh, you know, w- w- the, the idea was, I don't know if you recall last year, there was uh, this Fed paper talking around sort of our oh, double star that you know, we won't know it until we see it. Uh, and I think the idea is that we're seeing it now that rates have basically beginning to sort of break aspects of the uh, financial system, particularly in the US, which is a different situation than, say, uh, Europe. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, absolutely super restrictive. Um, if you, I think it's part of the speed with which rates have gone up. So you can sort of maybe uh, re- revisit these levels in a more calmer tone. But uh, the fact is, uh, if you want to fight inflation, you better sort out your financial system first. Uh, you can't fight uh, inflation and solve the financial system at the same time by raising rates. Dominic, we're expecting to hear from Janet Yellen later this morning that everything is fine in the financial system, that we have real resilience. What would it say, from your vantage point, to risk markets if the Fed comes out and says, you know what, we were wrong, inflation isn't the preeminent concern, and even though everything is stable, we're not going to raise rates anymore? Don't, that, don't, don't, don't you think that that could potentially be a liability for some of the riskier uh, assets? Um, well, the, the issue for the financial system, uh, in, in a sense, uh, if you if you say it's fine from a capital perspective, uh, th- th- you know that's that's largely true. Um, but obviously, it's from a liquidity perspective that you've got the issue. And we saw it in the gilt market last year, uh, whereby uh, liquidity problems can become solvency problems for you know, in, that, in that example, the insurance sector. And that's what you're seeing in the medium-sized t- banks. So. <coughs> Uh, you, uh, you know, you, you do, you know, it is true. You can say, you know, financial mm-hmm. system is fine, 
but you've got to focus on liquidity. Uh, and on that basis, uh, you have to kind of, uh, when the, the liquidity problem is coming from uh, the, the so-called you know, risk-free rate, uh, and the treasury yield curve that's attached to that, uh, then then that's your problem. So you can't um, basically fight inflation. And I agree that does maybe give people a cause for concern around the credibility around inflation. But the other thing that we've been arguing for a while is that this inflation is sticky uh, and it's almost beyond the control of the Fed. There, there's a time element uh, with which inflation will come down that the right. Fed can't necessarily control. Dominic Constum, you invented the linkage of quantitative finance into economics at Credit Suisse with Neil Sass years ago. You do have experience at Credit Suisse, to say the least. Can you imagine UBS merging with the Credit Suisse you know? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, that's. Uh, I think that's the... Uh you know, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, the, what the Swiss National Bank has done is obviously extremely important, a massive liquidity facility. There are a lot of idiosyncratic problems, uh, obviously, in, you know, at Credit Suisse. Uh, it would, uh, it, it's kind of fairly intuitive that uh, in the long run or the medium term, some sort of resolution would involve uh, the, the, the Swiss banks uh, um, finding some kind of uh, uh, tie up. Uh, you know, good bank, mm -hmm. bad bank, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the main thing about Credit Suisse is they have a wonderful private bank, uh, and that's what they kind of want to preserve. Uh, and investment bank is, you know, it, it is what it is. Would that private bank be valuable to other UK, continental, or American banks? I mean, there's a mystery here uh, to the the new culture of Credit Suisse. Do you denote a new culture? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a bank analyst, but I mean, I would say the private bank has always been the sort of jewel in the crown. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been very impressive. And uh, I would uh, I would absolutely imagine it would be, uh, you know, uh, attractive to uh, a lot of people. Yes, I think we're all bank analysts this week. <laughs> Dominic, thank you. Foxhole. You know, Dominic <clears throat> Constant, thank you, sir, of Mizuho. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's go straight to the guest, Peter Oppenheimer, Chief Global Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. Peter, great to catch up with you, sir. Really difficult moment, so thanks for carving out some time in your schedule. Thank you. You did like European banks. The facts have changed in the last week. Do you still like them? We do. Uh, clearly, in a situation like this, there's massive uncertainty, and I think the volatility that you've been speaking about and Lisa discussed is going to continue. But I do think it's important to, to, to recognize the underlying fundamentals here are pretty good. You've got strong capital buffers, tier, uh, core tier one capital of around 15% compared to about 5% to the European banks during the crisis in, uh, in 2008. You've got stable funding dynamics, 1.8 trillion of excess uh, uh, deposits, and you've got very ample liquidity. 
the liquidity coverage ratio is around 150% uh, at the end of last year. So it's a very different fundamental situation. And indeed, rising interest rates, which we've been seeing, is actually very good for the banks. Um, but, you know, confidence mm -hmm. is everything. And while this uncertainty continues, uh, they're likely to remain volatile. But they are cheap, and I think they're fundamentally in a relatively strong place. Peter, we note your decades of experience in seeing multiple crises. I know you've been to Zurich any number of times and know that what matters is to take lunch at the Kronenhall, Das Restaurant Kronenhall. That's what everybody <laughs> does in Zurich. It's the only place to eat. I get it. But when you're eating there now in this crisis at Cronenhall, is Switzerland part of Europe or is Switzerland still separate from Europe amid this crisis? Well, I don't think in a, in a banking crisis that anything is really separate uh, and particularly in a banking situation where you've got cross-border uh, integration and connectivity. So other central banks around the world will be talking to the Swiss authorities and I think will be also uh, preparing statements or willing to provide uh, as much liquidity uh, that's required if the situation continues to, to uh, unwind. Obviously, there's a difficult decision that the ECB have got to make, as Lisa was saying earlier. Um, but I think, again, they will emphasize the robustness of the underlying uh, system and their readiness to provide liquidity using some of the existing tools that they already have, potentially providing more. Um, but I think they'll take some comfort from the underlying uh, balance sheet strength of the banking sector in Europe, which, of course, we couldn't have said a decade ago. So I think from that perspective, it's a much more uh, robust uh, underlying situation. Peter, will you still be bullish on European banks if the ECB does not, cut, uh, does not hike rates today and indicates that they're on pause until they have more clarity? I think that it's very unlikely they'll say they're on pause because that will, if anything, provide some sort of sense that they're concerned about the contagion effects of this. I think they've got to look at the underlying fundamentals of the economy. Actually, that's looking pretty good. We don't expect a recession this year in Europe. Uh, inflation, core inflation, uh, underlying inflation is above their target rate. They've signaled quite strongly that they expect to raise the rates by 50 basis points. And the banking system, again, as I would say, appears uh, fundamentally resilient. And so I think they would want to sort of stay the course, but at the same time provide statements that are reassuring about their willingness to provide liquidity uh, to emphasise existing tools that are in place and that have been built up over the last few years since the uh, sovereign debt crisis and their ability to look at other things as well if, 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 if it's required. And Peter, do you think that tighter financial conditions, tighter lending standards are just inevitable now after what we've seen in the last week? I Yes, I do. Um, and I think this is all really a function of a massive shift in the cost of capital that we've been seeing over the last year, year and a half. I mean, you, know, you only have to go back a year and a half and about a quarter of all government debt around the world had a negative yield. You know, people were paying for the privilege of lending money to governments. That world has changed. You're getting close to 5% uh, on US dollar cash with zero uh, volatility and risk. And that's a high hurdle for <coughs> asset markets to pass. But it also means that there is a tightening in financial conditions and a rise in the cost of capital, which is inevitably having an impact on pushing valuations of assets down. And it's clearly causing some 
friction in areas of the financial markets. But if the underlying situation is uh, uh, robust and the capital buffers are in place, it won't prevent these problems, but may restrict the uh, contagion and the systemic uh, fallout from them. And that's, that's I think, uh, you know, fundamentally the important point to take away from this. A delicate moment. Peter, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Peter Oppenheimer there yeah. of Goldman Sachs. I think they're going to look asymmetrically and they're going to say, if we make decision A, what does it mean on an asymmetric basis, B and C as well? And to give us clarity on that, not only in the United States, but in a Europe that surprised a lot of people with optimism is Neil Dutta. He's out of U.S. Economic Research at Renaissance Macro, and he has absolutely nailed the resilient American economic experiment over the last number of uh, quarters. Neil, wonderful to have you with us and, and try to get away from talking about banking crisis. Just in all of your study of economics at NYU, Neil Dutta, is it just simple the ECB will ignore the data and the ECB will be on plan as scheduled? Uh, I don't know. That's an open question. Uh, my own sense is that they probably don't go 50. I mean, remember, wasn't it Lagarde that was uh, call, picking up the phone and telling right. Hank and how... Uh, how terrible of a decision it was for him to let Lehman go under. So, um, you know, she's, I mean, in my yeah. view, she, you know, again, we'll see that in the next. That she's probably going right. to err on the side of caution here. And we'll see that again in the next hour here with daylight savings time uh, in America. And, and you know, I, I've never heard Dada talk about ECBs. So that's pretty cool. You know, that's, <laughs> well, that's what a crisis you know, will do to you. This is a moment where we're all experts <clears throat> in random things that just seem to pop up day to day. And that's sort of the question that I have for you is how do you even chart a path forward when the facts change this quickly? And they are material because this leads to an actual tightening in credit conditions and lending. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, the question is exact. I mean, part of the reason why the economy was so resilient, remember, was that it wasn't especially credit sensitive to begin with. Right. That's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the folks talking about long and variable lags for the last 18 months, then shifted to talking about the weather, then shifted to talking about seasonal adjustment issues. And now are saying, oh, look, the lags finally kicked in. You know, sometimes in this business, Lisa, it's better to be lucky than good. Well, and this raises this issue of how do we even know what our biggest challenge, what our biggest threat is? And I go back to what Nouriel Roubini was saying, which is if the Fed pauses, if the ECB pauses, this could allow an unmooring of inflation expectations at a time when you do have an economy with strength. What is your concern about that? Is that still a preeminent risk or will the tightening take care of itself? No, absolutely. I think it's a risk. I mean, I don't think what's happened uh, right now in the in the banking system, as uh, unnerving as it may be, is enough to really, um, you know, send the U.S. economy into a below potential growth state. I mean, remember, I mean, as the data make clear, we went into this with a lot of momentum, right? You're talking about Atlanta Fed tracking three, three and a half percent, and you're talking about inflation running five percent. So you're talking about an eight. 9% nominal growth environment. That helps grease the wheels a little bit. So, you know, even though the data is stale, let's let's try to remember that the momentum going into all this is pretty robust. And that gives us a bit of a shock absorber uh, once this goes on. At the same time, the inflation data are not encouraging. I mean, people looking at PPI and saying, oh, you know, this is a reason for them to back off. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, core inflation is running hot. Inflation is 
been so strong over the first two months of the year that if it didn't do anything right. for the rest of the year, it'd still be up 1%. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the risk is if they pause, um, they may have to come in later and uh, then they may have to be even more aggressive. Um, so I, I, I tend to sympathize with that right. view. Neil, give me a level here. One of my great themes is Europe just flat out does not have a nominal GDP persistency like America. We are generally, because of technology and maybe a different demographic and economy, set at a higher level. If I'm right on that, what's your run rate on nominal GDP? I think we're in a 5 to 6% underlying nominal growth environment right now. Um, you, you know, you talk about uh, 2 2.5% real growth, uh, around 4% inflation. So, you know, 6%, I think, is, is a reasonable benchmark. And, and that, uh, that seems to me to be pretty constructive as well. Can they pause, I mean, ECB today or a, a Fed here in a number of days, can they pause with a strong statement that they will resume rate hikes as appropriate at some point? I mean, they could do that, but I, I mean, my sense was uh, in reading the events of last weekend and what the Fed has done, um, I, my, my ass assessment is it goes back to the Bernanke um, discussion about using the right tools for the right job. What they did was try to ring fence the banking system to create the space for themselves to keep hiking, um, to deal with slowing down the economy, um, uh, you know, and, and underlying demand. Remember, rates are a blunt tool that affects you know, all industries at the same time, right? Not just the banking sector. So um, I thought in some ways you can make the argument that what they did over the weekend was a way to create the space to ultimately hike. Um, you know, at the margin, obviously it makes 50 basis points less likely. You can't talk about a systemic risk exception and still go 50. Um, but I think you can make a reasonable argument to keep going 25. Um, you know, the data remain quite strong. Um, and we're not at a point yet uh, that suggests significant economic damage uh, as a result of this. As, as Michael McKee mentioned, I mean, home building stocks have yeah. been doing well. Housing can't work if credit isn't flowing to households. Neil, just quickly here, has a chance of a very hard landing or a harder landing become more likely in the past week as we've seen some of the tensions come to the fore? Yes, it has, because I think the biggest risk of a hard landing if the, is if the Fed follows the market's pricing of, uh, of interest rates. Because the markets, the, the fixed income market has an implicit right. dovish bias. And if the Fed follows that, it risks entrenching inflation, which further will push the Fed away from where the markets are. And that will uh, ris I mean, risk a much harder adjustment later. Neil Dutta, thank you so much for the Renaissance Macro Research this morning. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.